from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Defense Department has asked Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, Google, and Oracle to submit bids for the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability, or JWCC, program. The multi-billion dollar project will include contracts with several vendors and is the Pentagon's replacement for its JEDI Cloud contract, which it canceled back in July. Leaders at the Pentagon are reconsidering the role of cybersecurity in the new national defense strategy. That strategy, released every four years, gives insight into the greatest threats that the Defense Department is facing. Defending DOD networks against cyber attacks has been a growing priority in the department. Navy Times reports that the U.S. and Japan's navies have conducted anti-submarine warfare exercises in the South China Sea. The recent exercises tested the Navy's capabilities to track submarines. The goal of the test was to improve operability and strengthen capabilities. China's recent test of a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile took the Pentagon by surprise. Beijing was able to fire a missile from a hypersonic glide vehicle as it traveled at least five times the speed of sound. Retired Air Force four-star General Hawk Carlisle is former commander of Air Combat Command. He's currently president and CEO of the National Defense Industrial Association. General, welcome back to the program. Mimi, thanks. It's great to see you. I appreciate the opportunity to chat about this. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, called the test very concerning and very close to being a Sputnik moment. Do you agree with that? Uh, it, very concerning, most definitely. It's hugely concerning. I, I think the Sputnik moment, to some extent, is true. Although, you know, China is pretty open about writing what they're trying to do, what they'd like to do to us. Uh, they've studied us for the past 20 years. They know our strategic strengths and our operational strengths and weaknesses. And everything they do is designed to counter those. So the idea that they would uh, go after our missile defense capability in a way that is very difficult to counter, it, it, it's kind of what you would expect from China and what they're trying to do. So does this test mean that China could more easily hit the U.S. mainland with a nuclear weapon? I mean, does, does the U.S. have the missile defense capability to stop one of these Chinese hypersonic missiles? So that, that's the problem. Strategically, if you look at one of these that goes into orbit, this, the boost glide and how it goes into orbit, uh, you become uh, threatened at 360 degrees all the way around you. You know, it could come uh, usually in the past, certainly when we faced Russia, the missile defense, most of the missiles that Russia would shoot at us would come over the north, over the pole. Uh, so you could align your missile defense capability that way. With this capability that the Chinese demonstrated, the missile could come from anywhere. Uh, so yeah, it, it is a huge challenge to our missile defense system, especially as speed can, I mean, really constricts your ability to react. Uh, and then you have the added challenge that we're not prepared for, and that is it can come from anywhere of 360 degrees. And that is a huge challenge to our missile defense system. So which service or services should take the lead, particularly on defensive hypersonic weapons technology? So I think one of the first things you have to do is you have to know it's coming, right? So I think our sensor system and our ability to determine uh, what, what, what's happening, you know, right now we have the ability to determine uh, infrared systems through a SIBRS 
Um, and then uh, space tracking is going to be critical. So clearly on the sensor, sensor and understanding what's coming at us, the Space Force would be a huge player. And then, you know, there's a, I think there's a, a ground element, uh, a potential um, space element, depending on uh, space capability and space weapons. Uh, and, and so, I, you know, again, it's a joint problem. And that's why the Missile Defense Agency is a joint agency. So uh, clearly, I think all services have a huge part in, in being able to defend the United States against ballistic missiles and hypersonic missiles. So, General, what does this mean uh, strategically in the U.S.'s great power competition with China that they're clearly ahead in hypersonics technology? Well, as we said at the outset, Mimi, it's extremely uh, concerning to us. And as, uh, as General John Hyten, the retired, retired uh, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said, you know, this really does kind of look like a first strike capability. And, and the fact that uh, the Chinese have filled it, they are ahead of us. Uh, it's it's hugely concerning, and I think strategically, um, it, it does bode uh, ill in that it is it certainly looks to be a first strike capability, and you know it's already very difficult to determine the Chinese intentions other than they want to replace the United States across the board. Do you think the Defense Department is moving as fast as it can in developing and deploying hypersonic technology? So, you know, I, we're, uh, we're unfortunately hamstrung a little bit with our process the, in, in the PPBE process, planning program, budgeting and execution, that's a you know, McNamara 60s era uh, resourcing. So we do have to get faster. As uh, General CQ Brown, Chief Staff of the Air Force said, we have to accelerate change or we risk losing. And so I, I think our ability to react fast, to field technology fast, to be able to really get uh, uh, leading edge capability to be less risk averse and accept some failure and some risk in trying to get to these new technologies. So uh, can't, are we moving as fast as we need to? Not even close. Are we moving as fast as we can under the current system? Yeah, but the system has to change. We have to get better and faster. So what are we, um, what's going to be happening, General? What, what are we looking at as far as um, advancements in Chinese technology and hypersonics and our ability to counter that? Well, I, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a glass half full kind of guy a little bit. So I still believe that the American people and American entrepreneurship and innovators are the best in the world, along with our friends, partners and allies. And so I still think that, you know, you look at the commercial sector and, and the United States still is innovators and entrepreneurs and, and coming up with solutions that nobody could have thought of before and filling challenges, uh, that's an inherent capability of free, liberal, democratic society. And I, I still think we can do that. I think sometimes the government is difficult because you know it is taxpayer dollars, so you have to be uh, cognizant of that. But we've got to get better at accepting some level of risk, moving quicker, and, uh, and taking advantage of the innovative spirit that exists in the American people. All right. Well, General Carlisle, of course, we're going to be talking about this much more in the future, but thanks so much for joining us. It was great talking to you, Mimi. Happy Thanksgiving. Coming next, tensions between China and Taiwan could impact U.S. readiness. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the Pentagon can do to deter China. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
tensions continue to rise between China and Taiwan over disputed islands in the South China Sea. But if China attacks Taiwan, how would leaders at the Pentagon respond? Timothy Heath is a senior international and defense researcher at the Rand Corporation. Tim, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What does China want from Taiwan? China believes Taiwan belongs to China. Uh, there is an unfinished civil war, and technically speaking, both Taiwan and China claim to represent China, at least that's what the governments say. In reality, of course, Taiwan has governed as a de facto independent country for many years, but Beijing has not given up on its hope to uh, make Taiwan, incorporate Taiwan into China. And how likely is aggressive action towards Taiwan from China? Well, I think we've seen recently that China is willing to add pressure with intimidation tactics, such as flying large numbers of uh, military aircraft near Taiwan. Uh, routinely, Chinese government officials make threats and, uh, and, and, uh, and warn Taiwan that if it does not come to the bargaining table and take concrete steps towards unification, then uh, Beijing reserves the right to take any action. However, in general, the Chinese are behaving cautiously. They do not want to engage in a war with the United States. So despite the uh, demonstrations and intimidation, they've been very careful about actually uh, initiating any combat. So what strategic interest does the U.S. have in preventing Chinese action against Taiwan? I mean, what's the big deal for the United States? Well, the U.S. interest lies in maintaining stability and peace in a part of the world that is important for the U.S. economy. We have major trade partners with China as well as Japan. Taiwan is also a big trade partner, probably in the top 15, and the U.S. Uh, if it saw a war break out, could see its economic interest uh, hit dramatically. Moreover, the U.S. has an implied security commitment to Taiwan and a failure by Washington to help Taiwan in the event of a Chinese attack would raise questions about the credibility of U.S. alliance commitments, and that could have follow-on effects uh, around the world. When you say implied, what do you mean? Uh, the U.S. does not have a formal treaty with Taiwan. The U.S. does not have any kind of security alliance with Taiwan, no formal document that states that they are that U.S. is obligated to help Taiwan at all. However, the U.S. does have the Taiwan Relations Act, which is a law passed by Congress that obligates the U.S. to help Taiwan uh, defend itself. And so that language is very ambiguous. It doesn't formally commit the U.S., but the reality is, for many years, U.S. has sold arms to Taiwan and provided military advice to Taiwan, and it is well understood around the world and in Beijing that an attack on Taiwan would probably result in U.S. involvement at some level. So what are the Defense Department's options in deterring China from aggressive action or attacking Taiwan? Uh, it is a difficult problem that has gotten more challenging in recent years due to the fact that the Chinese have built up a massive inventory of anti-ship and anti-air missiles. Uh, any intervention by U.S. military forces could face a serious threat from Chinese military forces. 
So the Pentagon is developing options. Uh, you know, one area of advantage that persists is undersea warfare, that's submarines. The Chinese do not have a good answer for that. So the U.S. could rely on submarines to some extent to help uh, challenge the Chinese Navy. Um, the U.S. is also developing long-range missiles that, that can be launched farther away from Taiwan and perhaps keep U.S. aircraft uh, safe from Chinese surface air missiles. And then the U.S. is working strategically uh, on building alliances and partnerships with Australia, Japan, and others in the event of a crisis. Um, the U.S. is hoping that uh, a multilateral coalition could persuade the Chinese to back down from uh, escalating into all-out war. Um, Tim, what can the Pentagon do if China does decide to embark on even some limited aggression towards Taiwan? You know, is there something that can be done in response that wouldn't risk escalation? Well, I think diplomacy would be very important in the event of a crisis if China started to try uh, something more aggressive but but did not want to escalate into total war. Um, a appearance that the U.S. had the support of countries throughout the region in, in uh, calling for restraint and de-escalation is very important because Beijing does want to be seen around the world as a respected great power. And Beijing does have ambitions of, of providing more and more leadership in the Asia Pacific. If instead countries were critical of Chinese belligerents, this might cause Beijing to rethink how far it wanted to, to go in coercing Taiwan. So I think diplomacy is an important step. Uh, moving military assets uh, closer to the region would be an important deterrent signal as well, because that would warn Beijing that continued belligerence could risk escalation into a broader war with the U.S., which we know Beijing simply doesn't want. And you mentioned American allies in the Pacific, like Japan and Australia. What role would they play, not just in deterrence, but also in a possible response? Well, Japan, very likely, because the uh, military forces U.S. military forces that are most likely to intervene in a conflict between China and Taiwan are largely based in Japan, in Okinawa in particular. That's where several large air bases are located. That's where American aircraft would probably operate from. And, uh, and China knows this, so there's a very high chance that in a fight, China would target those air bases, which means uh, missiles launched against Japan will, will almost certainly result in Japan getting into the war. All right. Um, well, Tim, let's hope that doesn't happen. Thanks so much for being on the program. Appreciate sure. it. No problem. Up next, climate change is damaging U.S. military bases. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the Pentagon should do about the worsening effects of climate disasters. We'll be right back. Climate change is affecting U.S. military bases, damaging them with floods and other natural disasters. The increasing frequency of these events could lead to big consequences for America's armed forces. Kieran Javnani is a consultant with the Geotech Center at the Atlantic Council. Kieran, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So what are the vulnerabilities that DOD bases and installations are currently or potentially facing from climate change? 
Sure. So there are a lot of potential things that the DOD is facing. Um, inevitably, unchecked climate change is going to lead to, and in many cases has already led to, severe weather disasters, which then have the potential to exacerbate global instability through things like forced migration, resource deprivation, um, agricultural declines leading to global hunger, all of which can lead to increased conflict and the need for increased military missions, such as humanitarian and aid missions. So really, climate change is not only going to impact DOD installations, but it's also going to impact their missions and their preparedness in the future. What happened at Offutt Air Force Base in 2019? Sure. So in 2019, Offutt Air Force Base was experiencing extreme flooding after a bomb cyclone flooded the Missouri River. And although the extent of the flooding may have taken some by surprise, the risks to Offutt Air Force Base were long known by the U.S. military and other relevant government agencies. But despite knowing that this base was vulnerable to floodings, agencies acted slowly. And estimates indicate that the disaster would have cost a lot more to repair than it would have cost to prevent. In fact, preventative action would have only cost around $22.7 million. But instead, after the fact, Congress had to approve approximately $650 million for a four-year rebuilding effort. That's a huge difference in cost, and frankly, that cost comes out of taxpayer money. Your article says that since the Gulf War, the U.S. has lost more F-22s to climate change than to enemy combatants. That's surprising. Yeah, it is. And it's something that a lot of people don't realize is that the U.S. military is actually prepared for the missions that it carries out, but it's not prepared to face the threat of climate change. And therefore, when things like hurricanes destroy Air Force Base Tyndall, which at the time housed around one third of the Air Force's F-22 Raptor stealth fighters, they didn't know how to deal with it. And in fact, you know, the Air Force did try to deal with it in advance in some ways. They tried to put 17 of these F-22s into a hangar only for the hangar's roof to collapse on itself and damage them anyway, showing that they underestimated the potential strength of Hurricane Michael. And this is, a, this is a pattern that keeps happening where we see that the Air Force and other relevant military branches are not prepared to deal with the forces of climate change. But Kieran, has this impacted readiness? Yeah. I think to an extent it has already impacted readiness, but I think this is more of a future threat as we see increasing weather events. As of right now, you know, the U.S. military has already started taking steps to analyze the bases that are most vulnerable, and they've started looking at preventative action. If they carry through with this, then I think mission readiness is going to be a lot more secure. But if they're faced with constant hurdles, then I think in the future, mission readiness is going to be a little bit more problematic because as of right now, global temperatures are only increasing and these climate events are set to only get worse. So what does DOD need to do right now to future-proof the military bases? Sure. So I think there are a few things that they can do. They can take a proactive approach to strengthening these bases as opposed to a reactive approach. And again, we've already started to see this. They can also invest more in smart technologies that allow them to actually future-proof their bases. 
And they can also invest more in their people and in relevant trainings that are going to be needed to combat threats of the future caused by climate change. Is there a particular base that you think is most at risk that you would urge the Pentagon to address immediately? I'm not sure if I would say there is an immediate one, but I would say that a good place to start in looking at this is actually in the 2019 report that the DOD released themselves, where they analyzed 79 priority installations. And they found that already two thirds of these military installations are critically threatened by climate change. That's where I would start. I mean, in fact, 53 of them out of the 79 face threats from flooding, 43 face threats from drought already, and 36 are currently facing threats from wildfires. So that's where I would start in you know, narrowing it down and setting priorities. And do you think that private industry can get involved in helping the DOD with this? Is that something that you think would be necessary? Yeah, of course. Um, in fact, they've already started, you know, um, Deloitte recently released a report talking about how smart military bases should be logical extensions of smart cities. And the key benefit to having smart military bases within smart cities would be that the inclusion of technologies would allow for flexibility and the adaptiveness that are needed to carry out primary mission responsibilities irrespective of dynamic threats like a changing climate. Um, additionally, smart bases can be built incrementally over longer periods of time, which then allows for a bit more fiscal flexibility and the opportunities to test vulnerabilities via strategic reviews or wargaming. All right, well, Karen, I appreciate your work on this and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can also find every episode on our website. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.